0: Community Church. We are here to help each other worship, live, and rescue like Jesus. For more info on who we are, go to cpmodesto.org. So so this morning um, we wanted to talk a little bit about what you can expect as we go into this new year. Um, there's a new documentary on, on Netflix called 14 Peaks. Um, and uh, one person last hour was like, hey, you should have said spoiler alert, whatever. They're not gonna make a documentary about something who doesn't succeed. So anyway, um, so that's your problem. But anyway, um, it's called Fourteen Peaks. It's about a guy named Nims who is from Nepal, and uh, he is he is a mountain climber, and he uh, wanted to scale the fourteen highest peaks in the world in seven months. And so these peaks are are these mountains are mountains. They include mountains like Annapurna, Everest, K two. So these are are serious, these are serious things. And and all 14 peaks are either 8,000 or more meters, which is is about 26 plus thousand feet. Um, You know, you can't breathe well in that kind of altitude and atmosphere. But he wanted to do all of these, all 14 of these peaks, which ran from Tibet all the way to China in seven months. To give you some context for that, the, the record for climbing these 14 peaks previously was seven years. Um, this takes a ton of work because you've got to deal with weather that you can't control and sometimes makes it impossible to get to the summit. There are frozen bodies throughout many of these mountains and peaks that have just not been removed because you can't, you can't, some of them you can't find, some you just can't remove and so they're just there frozen at the end on these mountains uh, you have to deal with na- with nations. Um, there's there's all kinds of issues with getting into the, the the peaks that he wanted to climb in China. And dealing with the Chinese government, so there's all kinds of things that are and, and let alone those things, but but let alone the the fact that that none of us in this room could probably ascend up to one of those peaks in a year. <laughs> and and so it just it's a huge thing. Um so as he was beginning to, 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 to fulfill this dream of his and this vision to climb 14 peaks in seven months, by the way, um, he did accomplish it. He ended up finishing the final summit in six months and six days, which is unbelievable. Uh, like it's just astounding that, that he could. And he, of course, did this with an incredible team of, of fellow uh, fellow um, Napalese people, and uh, I mean it was pretty incredible what they did but it 's interesting because at one point he as he 's beginning to, to to think through this dream and, and beginning to make this happen, he goes around to find different sponsors to sponsor him and to support and, and finance this this endeavor because it 's incredibly expensive and so everyone he went to everyone said no everyone said no you know it 's not even possible we don 't want to be We don't want to be connected with something that can't happen, that's going to end in failure. So, you know, he went to all of the typical big name places that would sponsor this extreme activity, and everyone said no. And so he decided, and he talked to his wife about it, and she believed in him. And so they mortgaged their house to fund this endeavor. They risked everything they had, all of their resources. Uh, NIMS was actually a, a, a branch of the British military that, that, that um, connects with Nepal. And um, he was basically the breadwinner for his extended family. His mother, his elderly mother was ill, um, not doing well and needed a lot of medical care. His older brother told him, if you do this, if you quit the army and you go and pursue this, he says, that's not okay. He said, you can do it later, but you are supporting our family and so when Nim's, he felt strong enough that he went through with it. And so he went, he and his brother didn't speak for months. And so there was a falling out in his family because of this pursuit. And, and, and so it's interesting as, as I was thinking about this, that, 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 that here this, this guy has this dream, this vision, this mission to go in and ascend and summit the 14 tallest peaks in the world and this passion and conviction, he risks everything. He risks all of his resources and finances. He, he is at odds with family. And, and he has no support network underneath him to help him accomplish this, but, but the people that he's with and, and to go through this. And, and as I watched this documentary, I thought to myself, and, and then I think the Holy Spirit spoke And as as astounding as this accomplishment is, as far as humanity and from a human perspective, it doesn't remotely compare to that which God has called us to do in preparing the way for Jesus to return and to walk others into the kingdom and to live in unity and love with the body of Christ. In fact, What NIMS did, as incredible as that is, is worthless compared to what we are called into for the sake of eternity. And I thought to myself, and I guess I was asked, what have you risked or what has it cost you to follow Jesus and join his mission? And honestly, when I look in comparison to what NIMS did to climb mountains, I have risked nothing and it has cost me nothing for the sake of the gospel. I shared last week a little bit that I believe that over the last couple years, and I think it's been, God's been growing this for a long time, But I think that God has worked his people and is working his people through a process of reproof, revelation, and restoration. And I believe that, that, that God, through his Holy Spirit, has his people in this process. And I think some of us are, are at different places in that process. Some of us are still at the place of reproof. We're not responding well to what God is saying. And so he's continuing to have to reprove us and discipline us to get us to the point where we'll listen to what he has to say. I think others of us maybe are are at that place where we've responded to his reproof and we're at that revelation stage where he's revealing things about us and in us and and what he wants for us. And I think still yet others are at that place where they've recognized that revelation that God has given them and they're at this place of restoration and they see that path forward of of the, the new kind of people we're called to be. And I feel like for myself, I've been walking through this path probably at, at, at one time, I'm in all three spots, but with maybe different percentages. But I think that's what God's doing and I think it's very clear that God's doing that. And, and so as far as his reproof, I think, I think there's a reality that, that kind of where we are, taking an inventory of where we are, we inhabit the time that God has designed for all people to be drawn to himself before judgment. We live in a particular time that that began after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus that began a season where all people were called and drawn toward Christ. They have to respond before Jesus returns a second time and there is the final judgment, there's a reality that, that, that at that final judgment, you are either forgiven because of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, or you are not. Those are the only two viable categories, one or the other. And both of them come with great, with, with, with great result and with great con- consequence. And so the question that, that I raised this morning and has been going around in my life is this, is does, does my intimacy, does your intimacy with Jesus reflect the opportunities and resources you have at your disposal? Does your maturity in Christ, does your intimacy with Christ reflect the privilege that you've been given does it make sense? Is obedience to Jesus an idea or a defining characteristic that you are known for? Do you understand obedience to Jesus or is it something you're known for? I, here's a here's question, is, is Jesus more of a celebrity in your life or is he a savior king? See, we know lots of things about celebrities. We can follow different people. I mean, people, there's a lot of people in the world who know a lot about NIMS now, but they're not, they don't have intimacy with him. They don't have an intimate relationship with him. We know a lot about a lot of celebrities, and I think in a lot of ways, we know a lot about Jesus, but the question is, do we live in a way that he is our savior king, that that he has done what we can't do, that he saved us, and that he is king of all that there is. I think in a lot of ways, we pursue Jesus more as a celebrity than we do a savior king. And, and we know him more as a celebrity than a savior king. And, and so this morning, as we walk through this, I, I think there's, there's some reproof that God has, has, has really brought to my attention for my life even. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 25. We're gonna kinda we're gonna just kinda do a a flyover of Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, Jesus tells some parables and they're all about defining and helping us to unpack faithfulness. What does it mean to be faithful? And so the first 13 verses in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells this parable to his disciples and and his followers and the crowds, he says, He says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. And then it goes on, Jesus goes on to say that when the bridegroom finally does get there, see, he's telling a story about a Jewish wedding ceremony and all of the pieces and parts that are a part of that. And that these, these, these 10 virgins were, were to have these lamps and be part of this celebration and this ceremony. And so what he goes on to say is that, that, that there was a delay and so that five of them had extra oil with them, five of them did not. And so when the bridegroom got there, Jesus goes on to say that the the, the five who had extra had enough and the five who didn't bring extra didn't have any. And they said, share it with us. And they said, well, we can't because we won't have enough. So they go to purchase more, but by the time they return, the doors are shut to the celebration and they're they're not allowed in. And, And so basically it's this idea of faithfulness for the king's return, for Jesus' return, that his people are called to be faithful and ready until he returns because we don't know when he's coming back, but we know that he is. And then, and then he tells, tells a story, a parable uh, of these, these servants. And in verse 14, it says, for the kingdom will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them to his property. To one he gave five talents, to another to, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away, and, he, and who, he who had received the five talents went out at once and traded with him, and he made five more. So also the one who had two talents made two more. But he who received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who received the five came forward, bringing five more, saying, master, you delivered to me five. Here I've made more, five more. His master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And the same thing happened with the second servant who had the two talents and he made two more. And, and his master says, you've been, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But then he gets to the, to the final one. And he says, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I would reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested the money at least with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the, the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who is not, even what he has will be taken away and cast, into, cast the worthless servant out into outer darkness in the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's interesting in that first parable, the, the, the foolish believed that it would be easier to be faithful than it was. But in the second story, the foolish thought it would be harder to be faithful than it actually was. And then to finish Matthew 25 off, Jesus tells a parable about the sheep and the goats. And he talks about basically the idea that just knowing information about the kingdom is not enough. It's actually doing the information in the kingdom. It's not just knowing the right things, but it's doing the right things and acting on those right things and those right things having a visible impact on your life. I wanna make, basically, faithful stewardship is defined by Jesus, is identified by the way my thinking and my behavior reflects the character of the king that I serve. That's what faithfulness is. It's my thinking and my behavior reflect the character of the king that I serve. And and whatever that is, that's the king that I'm faithful to. I wanna just throw out some observations about that middle parable about the talents. One of the things it says is is that the master gave the servants gifts, talents, abilities according to what he knew they could accomplish. So what's interesting about that is all those who've come to Jesus are entrusted by God according to what he knows they can accomplish. God doesn't give you an assignment in life that's too great for you to accomplish with his empowerment. But as we see in how the, the master gave one servant five, one, two, one, one, that God has called us to accomplish different things and not everyone is expected to accomplish the same thing, but do their best. The third thing that I think is interesting about this parable is that the master says the same thing to the first two servants, even though they produced a different amount. One produced more, one produced less. But to the both of them, he said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little, and now I will place you over much. So it's not necessarily about the amount that we produce. It's about that we are faithful in what God has given us. So it's not that the, the haves will be more celebrated than the have-nots. It's that the faithful will be celebrated by King Jesus. And then finally this, that I think it's so easy, the thing that I, that I see in myself, it's, it's so easy to kind of think about even like the Old Testament idea of the tithe and giving 10% back to God. And, and in a lot of ways, we feel like if we give a certain percentage to God, we're good, we're set. But that doesn't, it's not how faithfulness works. Faithfulness is not 10% of what we are and what we have. Faithfulness is 100% of all of us. Faithfulness is 100% of me to God. And, and, and so I think part of my process that God has had me in is moving me to this place of revelation. Um, it's funny, I, I think, uh, I've had this question asked to me a couple times. Where are we going as a church? Where, where are we going? And uh, I, I understand the, the motivation for where are we going. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting because, to be honest, I don't know. I don't know where we're going. I have no five-year plan for our church to become something special or powerful or influential. What I do know, what I do know is that we need to be living our lives as individuals and as a community in a peculiar way here and now to prepare the way for the return of Jesus. That I do know. What I also know is that we need to be spirit-filled, we need to be feeding on the word of God, and we need to be living intentionally in our immediate spaces. Which I think in a lot of ways, we are really good at playing multiple choice with God rather than doing an essay. <laughs> for example, I mean, you know, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on board for being filled with the spirit, I'm on board for feeding on the word of God. I can do that. I can put five minutes aside each day to do that. But living intentionally in our immediate spaces, here's the thing, my immediate space, I go home to a place that I want peace and safety and comfort. Does anyone not want that at home? And I've done a lot to make sure that my home is comfortable and peaceful and safe. I don't know that I am living intentionally in my immediate space because I have a bunch of neighbors around me that don't even know what the inside of my house looks like. I know a little bit about my neighbors. I know about the inside of their lives. I know that most of my neighbors around me don't know Christ. I can can accept being spirit-filled and and feeding on the word of God, but I don't know that I want to live that intentionally in my immediate space because my immediate space is about me, not about them. You see, you and I are not made to demonstrate the glory of humanity. If if we were meant to to demonstrate the glory of humanity, then NIMS would be the greatest man on earth. (laughs) See, we are made to demonstrate the glory of God. That's what we were created for. Over the last few years, I believe many of us have been quick to give our opinions in God's name, assuming that He agrees with our opinions. We are so quick to speak in our generation that often we do not discern what God is actually saying. You're welcome to disagree with me on this, but I firmly believe that God has simply wanted us to hold our tongues and be silent before him until he chooses to speak. And if I'm right, I think we've failed really badly on that. We're not good at being silent and waiting our turn. You see, feeling what God feels is not an emotional experience the way we typically experience our emotions. Feeling what God feels is actually a settled sense of reality that comes as our spirit and our will is aligned with God's spirit and God's will. That's what feeling what God feels and having the heart of God and sharing God's heart. It's this settled sense of reality when we are completely surrendered to God? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I asked this question, and I think probably some of you asked this question. Why don't we see miraculous power like we read about in, in the Bible? Why don't we see God doing those things often? I think one of the main reasons that we see so little miraculous power is because we are too strong and too self-dependent. I don't know that we really are intimately connected to Jesus or realize the Holy Spirit in our lives. Because if we were, were, we'd realize that weakness must be embraced before we experience the greatness of God's power. And that's just not my idea, that's what scripture says. You will not experience the greatness of God's power until you embrace your own weakness. And some of us have never really gone down that road. Some of, I know from your story, some of you have that you've experienced the greatness of God power when you've come to that place of embracing and recognizing your own weakness. Here's, here, here's, here's the thing and why I think this is true. How much of your weekly activity can be accomplished without the power of God? Better yet, how much of our church's weekly activity do we accomplish without the power of God? Think about it this way. If the Holy Spirit was absent, if he was unavailable for consultation, like if you started to pray and all you heard was like a busy signal, if the Holy Spirit was unavailable, how much of your day-to-day life would change? Would you still make probably the same decisions you make? Would you still buy the same things? Would you still do the same activities? Because the question is, how much involvement does the Holy Spirit even have in our lives? To be completely honest, if he was unavailable, I don't think he would change my day very much. I think God has revealed two things, at least for me, over the past season. And these two things are very connected. They're symbiotic. They run into each other over and over and over. And the two things that I believe God has revealed about me and that he's revealed about the church is intimacy and faithfulness. Intimacy with Jesus. Intimacy is really knowing and really being known by another. We tend to use spatial language when we talk about intimacy. We say like, I feel close to that person or I was with so-and-so and I felt distant from them. The problem with using spatial language about intimacy is that intimacy isn't spatial, it's relational. But our terms are, are, are kind, of, kind of make it sound like it's a proximity thing when it's not. Because we've all experienced, we can be in the same room with someone and not be remotely connected with them, right? We can live with someone and not be connected with them. Uh, a couple things that intimacy is not, but we tend to convince ourselves it is. Intimacy is not knowledge. It includes knowledge but it's not knowledge. And just because we have knowledge about someone does not mean we are intimate with them. It does not occur through knowledge accumulation. Today, we have more theological knowledge available to us through Bible translations, good books, insightful articles, recorded sermons, interviews, movies, documentaries, music than ever before in the history of the world but we are not abounding in Enoch's who walk with God in a profound, intimate way. If you're not familiar with Enoch, he was a person listed in the Old Testament in Genesis where it's listing a bunch of lineage stuff, which can be pretty boring, but you hit this one point where it says, and Enoch walked with God and then he was no more. That Enoch had an intimacy with God that was noticeable and then God took him into his presence. We have way more at our fingertips to know God and to know about God but we are not brimming (laughs) with Enoch's who walk with God in a profoundly intimate way. And you know, we're, we're not alone. It's not like we're terrible people because of it, because this has been a struggle for us for a long time. In John chapter 14, Jesus is walking with his disciples, and one of his disciples, Philip, one of his disciples, who's walking with Jesus, spending all his time with Jesus in the flesh, says to Jesus, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Lord, show us the Father, and then we'll understand. Then we'll know. Then we'll have this degree of intimacy. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? We're no different than Philip. And we say, You know, we have all these things at our fingertips. And so intimacy is not just simply knowledge. In fact, knowledge is a oftentimes an impostor and distraction to true intimacy. If we are intimate with someone, we will have knowledge about them. Second thing that intimacy is not, it's not aesthetic experience. Aesthetic experience, meaning those things that we Feel an overwhelming emotion and like overflow of, oh, I feel so in touch, in tune, connected. Intimacy is not a worship event, it's not gathering together. Oh, it just is so good, and I feel so close to God when we're all together. That's not intimacy, it's not a revival or being part of a revival. All these things that make me feel like, oh man, I'm with Jesus, or or, man, I feel really good about Jesus and I right now. That's not necessarily intimacy. Because you see, we can have an environment that is intimate without having intimacy with that person. I could go all out and, and set up an incredibly romantic moment on the beach in Capitola with a table that has all of the trappings and have a, 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 a symphony there and have a world-renowned chef prepare the meal and candle it and just at sunset with no wind. Because <laughs> there's always wind there. And I could be with another person and we could both experience that moment and we could be completely not intimate. It could be a shared experience, but that doesn't mean intimacy. Intimacy is most understood and most present in trust. Trust is the bedrock of intimacy. More trust, more intimacy. Bottom line. And I would say as as you think and as we all go through our different challenges and tensions and crisis and and difficulties, what you must trust God most for right now is where he wants you to draw close to him. What you have to trust God most with right now that you are so afraid of or that you are so concerned about, because you're not afraid, you're just concerned. But what you must trust God most with right now is where he wants you to draw close to him and recognize your weakness. And I guarantee that your flesh says, no thank you. (laughs) Because your flesh doesn't like that. It doesn't wanna go there. I believe that one of the things that God has revealed to me and to us and for my life and for your life is faithfulness to Jesus. Faithfulness is another way of saying obedience. It is the courage to do what we know because of who we know. I'm willing to be obedient because I know who God is. And I can be obedient no matter what the ask is because I know him intimately and I'm able to do that. Like what Eric and Lisa said was, this is hard, this isn't comfortable. It'd be much more comfortable to stick with what we know and where we are, but God is asking us and we have to make a decision. Will we have the courage to do what we know to do because of who we know? Faithfulness is the reordering of our lives to reflect what is important to God and his kingdom. You say that again. Faithfulness is, is, is the reordering of my life to reflect what it, and reveal what is important to God and his kingdom. I don't know anyone who doesn't have to reorder their entire life to be faithful to Jesus. No matter how good you are or how moral you are or how ethical you are it takes reordering our entire lives. So the question is, what is important to God in his kingdom <laughs> that we would be reordering toward? And this is where it becomes this cyclical thing. I can only answer and live that out if I am intimate with Jesus. I have to know Jesus intimately to understand what he values. And I need to obey him, to be intimate with him, <laughs> And so it's this thing of, of that kind of goes round and round. I, I have to know him intimately. I have to know him and be known by him in order to be faithful to him. Because it's so easy. Have you ever wondered why so many people who you know and respect who are believers have diametrically opposite convictions than what you have? Now, there's... Distinction and difference in the way we we think and and which is fine. However, there are things in the kingdom of God that are diametrically opposed and cannot coexist together. I think it's because we're not actually intimate with Jesus. Because when we're intimate with someone, then we know what they want. And they're not bipolar about it. And, 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 so, and so I can only answer that. What I do know is important to God and the kingdom of God, a very simple entry-level thing, is that what is important to God is that more people call Jesus king than do currently now, and that those who already call Jesus king love each other and are of one mind. I know that that's absolute. If, if you think, well, I don't, know if that's, I, don't know if, I don't know if that's really the bottom line, read John 17 and then you can argue with Jesus because that's what he prays. <laughs> that more people recognize Jesus as king and that those who do already recognize Jesus as king love each other and are of one mind with those who are part of that family. So I think for me, I think that God has been working reproof through my life, revealing things about me that I don't wanna know. And then I think he's beginning to reveal a path of restoration. I think I'm beginning to recognize a pathway toward restoration. And here's the first thing. I am utterly unable to do the very thing God has called me to do. I can't do it. I cannot love other believers who have disappointed me and hurt me. I can't do it. I can take all my strength and all my drive and all my passion, and I cannot do that. Therefore, if there's any chance of success, then I must become truly dependent on God's power and God's timing. Because then it's possible. I have to embrace my weakness and recognize that I cannot accomplish the task or the mission. And that puts me in a place where I can be truly dependent on God and his power. Information and experience will not make the difference. Here's the thing. My life is the message that matters. Your life is the message that matters. It's not what you say, although what you say should be in tune with your life, but your life is the message. We in our culture have divorced our words from our behavior, and I can tell you that because we say things jokingly, like don't do what I do, do what I say. We think we kind of make that a joke, but it's not a joke, is it? It's how we want to live. (laughs) We've divorced what we say from what we do. And what God is calling us to do is that our life is the message. I am called to declare the glory of God and the weakness of human pride as you are called to do the same. But if we have not had our own pride shattered, which I think is part of God's reproof in this last season... If you have not had your pride shattered, then we cannot demonstrate the message we are called to speak and our words will lack power. Weakness forces us to become a demonstration of the words we speak. And when this happens in my life, I can create a confrontation without speaking a word because I am the message. You want an example of that? Mother Teresa when she walks into a room, does she have to use words? Or does everyone know what her message is? She's humbled presidents and kings and dictators, by her mere presence, because her life is the message. And have they've been humbled because she's proud and arrogant, no, they've been humbled by her humility. What is the message that your life speaks to others? Or do you have to clarify the message of your life? If you have to clarify, if I have to clarify what my life message is, then I'm not living the message. If this feels like, well, this, ah, I don't know about that or there's some, well, yeah, but, you know, but, if that's your internal response, then I would ask you to honestly reflect on whether or not you are intimate with Jesus. And I would probably also just wonder about myself. Can I be faithful to Jesus if I'm, if, if I'm struggling with intimacy with him? You see, it's not about comparing myself to others because I can always find somebody that I look better than. It's about comparing me to Jesus. It's about comparing me to Jesus. The good news is that faithfulness is not easy, but it's not as hard as you might think. <laughs> because again, even faithfulness is not dependent on you. It's, it's the power of the Holy Spirit in you. And again, like, God, like the master said to that servant, He didn't say, well done, my good and fruitful servant. It's not about you producing and performing super well. It's about you being faithful with what God has has entrusted you with. And we can be faithful through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It does take humble surrender, but you're not alone and it can be done through God's power. We just need to be broken for God's power to flow through us. So in 14 Peaks, Nims gave his endeavor a name, a project. He called it Project Possible because everyone said it was impossible. And in order to attempt it, remember that he had to leverage and risk everything he had. Not just his money, but his relationships. It kind of reminds me of the verse where God says, where, where, where Jesus runs into a man who wants to follow him and Jesus says, come follow me right now. And he says, oh, no, 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 wait, I need to go bury my parents first. It's interesting that Nims couldn't wait for everything to be settled with his mom. He just went. It's interesting to me how the behavior of this man from Nepal, who does not know Jesus, in his behavior exhibits more Christianity than I've lived. (laughs) I believe that God has moved and called us to a project possible that is impossible in our own strength. So the question for us is are you willing to risk everything that you depend on and have built to become that peculiar person here and now to prepare the way of Jesus? Am I willing? What I've realized is that I do have to reorder my life because my life, if I'm gonna be really honest and not spiritualize things, is centered around my comfort. And I don't know that I've risked much for the gospel of Jesus, if anything. I don't know that I've, it's cost me anything. As impressive as Nim's journey is, it is nothing compared to what Jesus wants from us nor does it even matter in comparison. It's actually worthless. It's amazing that one of the greatest human feats is worthless in the light of eternity. And Jesus calls us into something greater that we can accomplish, but only through our weakness, a shattered pride and a total dependence on on the Holy Spirit. For the next few minutes, we're gonna have an opportunity, just, just kind of sit, maybe pray, respond, sing, listen. I have experienced God's reproof over the last couple years in my life. He's woke me up. And through humiliation, he has revealed to me my true state and what needs to happen. I and others here at Crosspoint who've experienced this are going to obey and lead into real intimacy with Jesus and costly faithfulness to Jesus. And I'm inviting you to follow me into this restoration of the people of God for the kingdom of God. What I do know is that this is impossible with the power of humanity But with God, this project is not just possible, it is guaranteed. It's time to shatter the illusions of grandeur and our callings and our own convictions and live with all our strength to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus, not in our way, but in his way. That's where I'm headed. And that's where I'm leading. But we all have to make a decision. Jesus, I pray this morning, you would help us to see clearly what lies in front of us. It is so easy for us to tightly grasp our comfort and the worlds that we've built, the ideologies, the morality, because we think if we let go of those things, we will lose out and we will be unfulfilled. But God, for the joy set before us, I pray that we would be willing to sacrifice ourselves, surrender our will and our desires for the joy set before us that we will endure the cross, because you will exalt us. That we would stop pretending to know you, that we would stop pretending to be faithful, and that we would risk everything we would reorder our lives. To be intimate with you, Jesus. To be faithful to you. Father, I pray that you would forgive me for believing too much of myself at times and for believing the things that I was told that are clearly not true of your word. Holy Spirit, that I would surrender and follow. God, I pray that we as a people would grow deep in intimacy with you and be faithful. And that if we don't, if we struggle with a decision to to risk and to give up ourselves, that you would humiliate us until we surrender for the joy that you have for us, the joy that is on the other side, the joy that you can give us throughout the process so that we could become like you and that we could prepare the way for Jesus to judge that our preparation would mean that more people have eternal life with Christ when he returns. In Jesus' name.